So Hebrews 13. You know, real quick, we want to look at what we just covered a little bit last week. Just the fact of it starts out talking about brotherly love. We spent so much time uh, looking at Hebrews. Uh, it is a, a connective study of, of not only the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God, but I believe that uh, it is applicable to every, every man or woman that is religious or in Christ. If you're religious, it points the way to the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types. If you are in Jesus Christ, it not only gives him the supremacy, but it lets you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I love this, that your creator is your redeemer. Jesus Christ had to be God. And if anyone comes and says that he's anything else, reject it. Because beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the creator that created all, that created the galaxies that, uh, you know, I, I don't understand these things, but it just seems like things that are sometimes way beyond my grasp interest me the most. It's almost yearly, it's probably more than that, they're discovering how far the vast reaches of galaxies are. Even without, you know, the, all these telescopes and whatever that they've come out with, uh, they've realized that the reaches of the galaxies is beyond our comprehension. That one is also our Redeemer. <laughs> and that should make us stand up and realize that there is something more to this Christian life than meets the eye. Like we've talked about so much before, it produces something. This exchange of life, this one, if that is true, think about this. If Alpha Centauri is, if you know this, correct me if I'm wrong, it is 75 million light years away or some just outrageous thing. And that is, that is one of the farthest things that we can outsee, but there's galaxies way beyond that. Our own Milky Way galaxy with our planets surrounding the, the, the sun and, and, and rotating. We've talked all about that. All about nature, all about the things that go on just in what we can see and smell and whatever through our five senses. If this one spoke and all those things left in existence, I believe the Bible says that he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And, and they're finding out now that the heavens seem to be expanding. This one became a man and died for the sin of the world. And we've seen that the power, that God exercised power when he raised Christ from the dead. And that same power he exercised in you and I when we became born again. That is phenomenal, folks. That is, there's got to be a change of life here. Something has happened. I know nothing about the Greek. But the word in there is dynamis. It's, it's what we got our word dynamite. It's the power that not only raised Christ from the dead, but it's the power that transformed and changed a soul. Or as, as uh, Paul says to Titus, we've been regenerated. We've been born again, born from above. And this epistle started out, as you remember, with the amazing words, and I read it before a little bit earlier, that 
He upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things, not only you and I in our daily minuscule existence compared to the universe. Have you ever thought about your life, your life compared to not only this earth, but the universe and the galaxies and everything else? I have. Because before I was a Christian, I had an inferiority complex. Because my dad was a man's man, he could do anything, and he could fix anything, and I didn't follow in that footstep. So right away, I wanted to be like him. I had an inferiority complex anyway. But this God who created these vast reaches of these galaxies is the one who, who became a man and died for the sin of the world. And he was raised from the dead, and the world can see that God is satisfied with Christ. Our creator that created all these things, he loves me, he loves you, he pays attention to you, he cares about every area of your life. We will see that in a few verses down. How could that be? Because God said so. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And when those three components reside in the renewed heart of the man or the woman, your life is changed. It is changed. Time to grow up. Brotherly love. Mike touched about love earlier. We have, we are born again. We want to love. We just have that. The Bible says that we've all been taught of God to love one another. And Paul says this is a secret in Romans chapter 5, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Brotherly love, we've talked about that. Look at verse 2 again. Do not, do not forget to entertain strangers, for in doing so, some have unwillingly attained or entertained angels. Now, we looked at, at you know, Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, 19, and so forth. We can go all through the Word of God. Uh, we can go through one of my favorite... Uh, passages in uh, Second Kings, remember about Elisha and his servant, and, and they were in Dothan, the king of Syria was, was pounding in on him, and, and the servant woke up, and he was all freaked out, because with his senses he saw the surrounding army, and how Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes, and, and open his eyes, and saw what the real reality was. But also think about this real, real quick, though, think about the, the in Revelation, there's seven angels to the seven churches. Now, if these seven angels, they could have been seven individuals, they could have been seven messengers, but what have you, we should take this seriously. Not intrude where we don't understand, but to understand this, that God has used his messengers in one way or another. We should take that seriously. Remember the prisoners, verse 3, even chains with them. Love again. Let love brought Brotherly love continue. This is part of that. Remember those that are enchained. That's why we carry that, that public, starting to carry that publication. The voice of the martyrs. As if you were imprisoned with them. That's how much we need to identify with them so that we can pray with them and, and, and see their plight. There's people that are rotting away, so to speak, but their souls aren't rotting away. They're being renewed day by day, but they're being mistreated in these prisons. 
Read, read the, uh, the account, Portrait for Christ. That'll open your eyes to a lot of, lot of things. Look at verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. How can that be? How can we not be covetous? The whole appetite of man, that's humanism. As you have an appetite, you feed it. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, here's the secret, I will not leave you or forsake you. What did Paul say in, in Philippians? He says, I have learned to be abounding, and I've learned to be a base. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. There's the secret. You know? It's not I can climb the 700 or 7,000 foot mountain because I can do all things in Christ. That's not what the scripture's talking about. We can do all things and go through all areas of life, whether we're abounding or whether we're not. The scripture says that feed me with the food that's convenient for me, lest if I get full, I deny you and say, I'm like the rich man, I'm, I pay. <laughs> I got goods of all kinds. I'm going to build bigger barns. And God says, you fool, tonight I'm requiring you. Or don't let me go to be poor and steal and make the name of my God. Take it in vain. But feed me the food convenient for me. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. We all know, are you content with the things that you have? Or do you have that nagging part in you that wants a little bit more, a little bit more? It's like the guy that tried to persuade me in Amway. I just want to get the money situation dealt with. My friend, you will never get the money situation dealt with. The only dealt with situation that you can get is getting rid of covetousness because you're going to accept whatever God gives you and be content with that because God knows you better than you know yourself. And the things that will bring you contentment, God knows. You don't know. You don't know. The history of mankind shows that. Contentment, man does not know how to be content. He does not know how to get there. He does not know when he's there. He thinks he does. And it's a placebo effect. It's like taking a sugar pill and you have 20 people telling you, you take this thing and your headache will be gone. You can so much take that placebo pill, it will be gone. But only God knows what it means to make you content. Are we going to allow him? When we do, covetousness has a way of going out the back door. Because he will never leave you or forsake you. Ever. He will never leave you or forsake you. Are you content in your marriage? God had his program, an institution that works. God has programmed an institution that brings him honor and us absolute contentment. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual lifestyles, insectuous lifestyles, those are all harmful. They will not bring contentment. They will bring disaster. We've all known people in that category. My wife and I have sit and watched both man and woman cry in tears, their marriages crumbling because they want that more. They want a little bit more. God will never leave us or forsake us. So look at verse 6, where we boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, that was one of the things that, the, that God was 
was angry against his people for because they were seeking help from the Assyrians. They were seeking help from outside instead of knowing that their help was from God. If I have problems in my marriage, I don't go somewhere else. I go to Christ. If I have problems within the church, I don't go to something else. I go to Christ and his word. If I have a need in my life, I go to Christ. Not somewhere else. Because he will feed me with the food. You know, how long do we, how long is it going to take for us to wake up and see? I'm fairly a young man. I look back over my life. Is there a time when God's failed me? Is there a time when God's allowed me to suffer lack? No. God has fed me with the food that was convenient for me every time. All. None of you can say God has failed me because you're askew, not God. He is faithful. And we are lack of contentment in our life when we don't rest in that. Look at verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. Now that's peculiar that they would put these these, uh, verses right in the middle of trying to show how faithful God is and the contentment comes from him alone. Why would God put verse 7 right there? For two reasons, I believe. Number one, I believe that God is raising up people in his church that are going to take their role as shepherd seriously. No more of this false doctrine, no more of this of any other excuse than to feed God's word faithfully. But more importantly, I believe, or just as importantly as that, we need to be scrutinizing our life. I think that's why the church is in a mess. One of the reasons why. Their leaders are in a mess. The pulpits are in a mess. Wow. Who has spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. That's a pretty tall order. You mean, Lord, that that I need to be transparent enough to allow people to see my faith and, and follow it? Paul did. Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a tall order. Men are falling down today. Shame on them. And the answer is that Jesus Christ, verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This, among many other scriptures, the decision has been made in the word of God that Jesus Christ is God. And by that volition that if Jesus Christ is God, then my creator must be my redeemer, and therefore I am accountable to him and him alone. The choice has been made. The threshold has been crossed. There is no looking back. Jesus said it this way, those who put their hand to the plow and then look back, they're not fit 
for the kingdom of God. Does he mean works? No, he doesn't mean works. He means that that decision must be made to follow Christ and Christ alone. To receive all of our life and all of our, all of our material possessions, everything that allows us to live and carry on is bent for one reason, and that's to further his gospel. That the ministers in the, in the pulpits, the pastors, the evangelists, the people out there, Paul says in Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, to do one thing. Is it to make money? Is it to write books? Is it to be popular? Is it to be able to travel around the world because you've all, all of a sudden gained some platform? No, none of that stuff. It is so that the body of Christ might grow up to maturity so that this wave of doctrine that's going around the church and the world today might be seen for what it is, false. False doctrine. Leon has a, uh, uh, a story what I call, and that I love. It's just about the boat that's that's mooring through the treacherous waters. What are you going to do and say, well, I'll take my chances? Or are you going to have the chart that charts exactly where to go and exactly what to do? It's safe, and you go there. The ones that don't use are the ones that get shipwrecked. And it's a perfect example of not following Christ in his word. The decision has been made. I ask you has the decision been made in your home? Has the decision been made on your account, on your individual life? Decide on which side of the fence you're going to be on and stand there and stay there. I'm sorry to say most of, I can't say most, a lot of the men in the pulpits around the world today have not made that choice. And they are crashing into the rocks and they are drowning, and they're taking millions with them. Do not be carried about, verse 9, with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them, by grace. Are you sitting under a ministry, and I'm just saying this arbitrarily, that, that is ran by grace? Do they believe that this that this life starts in grace, that it is conducted in grace, and then it will end in grace? Or is there some other agenda? Is there some other way? Because the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. By grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God. We could go on. But we're not carried about with strange doctrines. You know how strange doctrines come about? I will tell you, grace gets left behind, or grace gets viewed as skewedly, or grace gets left out of, out of the doctrine or the daily living. Think about it. False doctrine comes about when grace is left behind. It is good that the heart be established in it. Are you established in it? You know, one thing that is rings true of every ministry that is in the land, what do they think about the Word of God? How do they treat the Word of God? And what do they think about grace? Well, grace is a New Testament doctrine. No, it's not. 
Grace is all through the Bible. Grace is not only unmerited favor, but it is the unmerited favor that God has poured out in Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of all the Word of God. Look at verse 10, he breaks and he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have an altar. We'll read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We don't have time to go there. We have an, a place in Christ Jesus that's secure. We're eating at the true altar. Our sacrifice has been laid down for us. The one who sacrificed himself is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He is our high priest. I don't need to go through an earthly priest. I don't need to go through any other way but Christ. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Wow. Wow. Burned outside the camp. Jesus was thrown outside of Jerusalem. Outside the city gates, they crucified him. Because his was an all consuming sacrifice. I'll get back to that in a second. Look at verse 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He suffered outside the gate. John 19, 17 through 20 says this, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him. On either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title read many, or many of the Jews read it, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. One commentator put it was written so all the known world at that time could read plainly in their own language. This is the king. This is God's sacrifice. To you Jews, this is the fulfillment of all that the prophets have written or written. To you outside of Jerusalem that are seekers, this is the one. What is happening right now is the apex of history. We have an altar that we eat at that those who do not come have no right to eat at. This is the one that is, is sanctifying us. We get a glimpse in this next verse of what it means to carry the cross. Just a little glimpse. You know, we all have heard, like I mentioned last week, thing, you know, people have their definition of what it means to carry the cross and what it means to, you know, this and that. And a lot of people think that their earthly situations are the cross that they have to bear or what have you. No, that's not what carrying the cross of Jesus Christ means. We get a hint of it in Luke 9, 23 and other places. Jesus said that if any man come after me, let him deny himself. 
pick up his cross, and follow me daily. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark says my sake and the gospels will find it. So there's a hint that carrying the cross means something. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth within me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The cross is an instrument of death. It's an instrument of shame and reproach, but it's an instrument, as Paul said, of separation from the world and separation to God. But look at verse 13. After he suffered outside the gate, verse 13 says, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. There we go. Let us take the message of Jesus Christ outside the, 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 the camp, so to speak, bearing his reproach. That's what it means to carry the cross of Christ amongst all the other, and there's so much more. But those scriptures we've just talked about here, let us go forth with him outside this societal uh, understanding or outside this, uh, this world that does nothing but spit constantly in his face. Do you know that Christ is so rejected in this world as, as obviously the Bible said that it would? So what happens when you take the message of Christ and your Christ representative out in this world, you're going to bear reproach. You're going to be persecuted. You're not going to be welcome. There's going to come a time here. I was talking to a pastor of mine the other day. We were talking about getting rid of or getting rid of signs that the government looks at, um, you know, 501Cs and so forth. There's going to come a time, and he agrees. He's been doing a lot of study on this, and it's heading towards that agenda that it's not only going to be illegal in this country to preach the gospel, it's going to be considered hate speech. That's how they're going to get around that. But all but biblical uh, churches that are vibrantly going out and sharing their faith and they're a threat to a community, they're going to be hampered on. They're going to be looked at as haters. They're going to be looked at as bigotry. Haters, true biblical Christians, love. And they go out and love. So you can see the reproach of the cross, carrying the cross of Christ. As Jesus was carrying the cross through Jerusalem, crowds were cheering. They were, they were anticipating him hanging upon it. He came out when, when Pilate had condemned him wearing the crown of thorns and they cheered and they yelled, crucify him. They wanted to get rid of him. He was a stench. He, wasn't, he was a problem in their program. He was a problem in now in the world being united in one world religion. Jesus is a problem with the agenda of this world. And the cross of Christ is a reproach to that. It's offensive. But look at verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. I love that. I wanted to read something eleven twenty six. by the way, about that, uh, that verse, about the fact that, therefore let us go forth, verse 13, him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Remember in that, in that wonderful uh, 11th chapter, uh, talking about Moses, you know, he chose 
to suffer the affliction of God. It says this to him, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. And it says, by faith he forsook Egypt. He, he didn't fear the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who was invisible. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. I don't know if anybody who can look at Revelation 21 and 22. Go and look at it afresh and read it about the new, the new Jerusalem and so forth. It's absolutely captivating. Written in beautiful language that will captivate the renewed soul to the point where you long for it. Here we don't have a continuing city. We long for that which is to come. We gladly go out and bear the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to. Therefore, verse 15, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You know, in, in, in the midst of all that, Peter said amazing things about the cross of Christ. And Peter's epistles abound with praise. He said, if you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's what I want. That's what we want. We want God, the spirit of, of, of Christ and the glory of resting upon us. On their part, he's blaspheming. He's blasphemed, excuse me. But on your part, he's glorified. So this writer says in verse 15, Therefore, let us by him continually offer the sacrifice of praise. We saw that in, in Psalm 51. This is what happens of a heart that has the joy and the fellowship of God, one who knows they are renewed, one who knows that, that Christ has died and he's risen from the dead. And that is proof that by me putting my trust in him, I'm forgiven, I'm a new creation. I have a new heavens, a new earth waiting for me. I have a new body waiting for me. I have a new name waiting for me. You know, of all the books, and believe me, I've got a lot of books. And of all the books I have, not one of them has ever adequately described heaven. Never come close. We can't describe it. If Peter says that we can have joy indescribable, how much more heaven? And that's what we have waiting for him. Therefore, we seek that continuing city. We gladly bear the cross and the approach of Christ. Therefore, we are going to offer sacrifices of praise. What else can we do? The fruit of our lips give thanks to his name. Look at verse 16. Do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Do good and share. Mike also touched on that earlier. Do good and share. Do good to others. Share. Somebody needs help, help them. Somebody needs encouragement, encourage them. Love them. Make that your business. 
because that is our business. Jesus Christ said, I have come. Not as the world says, to be a good teacher and influence. I have come to give my life a ransom for many. I have not come to be served. I have come to serve. That, in a nutshell, my friends, is the, the apex of what it means to walk as a Christian. Giving praise to his name, doing good to those who, like yourself, don't deserve it. But because of love, we've been forgiven for Christ's sake. Remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. We've been forgiven our sins for his sake. Verse 17, I want to just touch on this and we'll, we'll be done real quick. You can blame Mike for my going a little bit longer. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> Obey those who rule over you. Here we go again. This, these admonitions in the word of God have been so abused all through the church age. So abused. <clears throat> you mean I got to obey, you know, regardless that's not what it's saying here. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Boy, that's not a very good word today, is it? For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for, you, for that would be unprofitable for you. Why are you to obey those? Why are you to be submissive to their, to their teaching and their shepherding and their role as a pastor? Why? Because they are going to watch out for your souls. They're going to give an account. Now, there are some out there, like Paul says, I'm in prison here. There's some out that preach Christ out of controversy just to cause me trouble. Absolutely. But there's other that preach Christ out of goodwill, knowing that I'm set up for the defense of the gospel. In this, I'm going to rejoice. Christ is preached. I am rejoicing. But the one out there who has ill avenues of gain or whatever, that he's, he's doing something as far as uh, other than being an example, he's going to be held accountable. This is nothing different than what James says in James chapter 3. James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Dr. Barnhouse made a statement one time, and I've said it before, but this is, this is a wonderful statement. He uh, was talking to a lady that son was influenced by him and wanted to be a pastor, just like him. He said, Ma'am, he said, I have one bit of advice for you and for your son. If he could be anything else, if he could be content with being anything else, that's what he should do. But if he cannot find anything in this world that he'd be content with, God might have called him into the ministry. That's how important it is. Obey those that are over you. Be submissive to them. They watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. That's why we love people. I'm going to give an account. We're going to give an account. If you have the grandest opportunity of, of teaching 
and shepherding anybody, especially fathers to their sons, pastors of the congregation, people that you rub shoulders with, that you share the gospel with, that you're discipling, whatever. It's a joy that is inexpressible, but you know that you will give an account. And this is especially talking about the rulers of the church. We can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and so forth. Uh, when This is great. You know, <laughs> this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a, a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good thing. But... Let this not escape your notice. This one must be blameless. In other words, a man that does not have an accusing finger always pointing to him. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. Especially our adversary. The husband of one wife. He needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to have his eyes in a socket pointed toward his wife and so forth. He needs to be temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, on and on and on. He needs to be one that God is going to hold him strictly accountable. And by the way, those things in 1 Timothy 3 is not something a man could conjure up himself. Okay? I have seen, and you have seen, us that have been in Christ for him, what I call self-proclaimed pastors or self-proclaimed evangelists. They want to go out because they feel that, hey, you know, I could do that. This is easy. No, God ordains men. I'm sorry. Seminaries might give degrees, but they do not ordain men. Men do not ordain men. God ordains men, and they're going to be held accountable. I hope this is instructive to you because the day of the Internet is so prevalent. There are so many teachers and false teachers on the Internet. Pray for us, verse 18. We are confident that we have good conscience. In all things, desiring to live honorably. Wow, does that need explanation? Good conscience. A good conscience is worth gold. Because those outside of Christ, the Bible says that their, their conscience is troubled. It's like a foaming of the ocean of, that the waves bring foam of shame and guilt on the shore. But we, are, we have a, a, a conscience that's been cleansed. We have a good conscience, a desire of conscience. We can lay down and go to sleep at night, knowing that our God is in control. And the man that stands up and gives the word of God faithfully and yet allows the word of God, you know, I'm telling you, people say, well, you know, he's a, he's a good guy, but he doesn't practice what he preaches. You know, that the word of God is, is the best. It's likened to a scalpel. And it must do its work. Because if it doesn't do its work, you're being disobedient, and it hurts. Well, guess who has to do it first, if, if you will? Because they will give an account. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. Verse 19. Let's, let's quickly go through this, and we'll end this. Now may the God of peace, verse 20, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, thy great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Wow, now he's going back to the belly of the reason why this epistle was written in the first place. He is the one who inaugurated the first covenant, or the, uh, the everlasting covenant. But he did it with his own blood. He did it. 
He not only put it in effect, he stamped on it. It is finished. He brought up the great shepherd of the sheep. He brought him up from among the dead, the Bible says in emphatic language. The shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Wow. Brought him up from the dead. You know, you read, you read the accounts, especially Psalm 23 and so forth, how God loves to be a shepherd. He loves to, to provide security, direction. Um, I'm sorry to say that the uh, video that, that Cam brought years, a couple years ago now, the soul shepherd is, is gone, where it is, but any of you had the privilege of looking at that, that is factual. The shepherds in those times sat and they sleep at night at the gate of the sheep pen. They were constantly guarding and guiding. God raised up his chief shepherd from the dead. And the everlasting covenant is sealed. It's there. It's not going anywhere. Look at verse 21. Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Working in you. He is working that good work in you that's pleasing in his sight. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way. He is working in me. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, and 11, if you look at it, it's beautiful. Not only are we saved by grace, but we're his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand. Here, the writer, there's, there's so many reasons why I believe that the writer here is Paul. But nonetheless, Paul is saying that he is working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Let him. Give him your life unreservedly and let him work in you because it's well-pleasing the sight. Jesus said, I do all things that please the Father. We want to do all things that please the Father. I appeal to you, brethren, verse 22. Bear with the word of exhortation which I've written you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy had been set free, with whom I shall see you if you come shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Wow. So this one obviously is writing in prison, incarceration. Timothy was also incarceration, set free. This is a plea. You know, as we've gone through this, this, and I'll, I'll end with this, um, if we've gone thoughtfully and methodically through this epistle, we see that, that God is the one that institutes the way to himself. 
And I don't say this for defense of the gospel. I'm set up for the defense of the gospel, and I want, I want you to be set up for the defense of the gospel. If somebody came to you and asked you for the reason of the hope that lies within you, what will you tell them? Can you defend the gospel of Jesus Christ? I had the privilege several years ago of talking to a Messianic Jew. Most of our conversation came right from the book of Hebrews. But he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if there is anything that, that is ever said from a pulpit, and you are not going back and searching to see if these things are so, you are doing dishonor to the person behind the pulpit. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way, but you are doing dishonor. You are doing dishonor to anybody you sit under, you are doing honor to anybody you call your pastor. You are definitely doing dishonor to me. If anything you hear from here, you do not go back and search the scriptures to see if these things are so, you are dishonoring me. That is how, and I will end this epistle to Hebrews this way, this is how the Bible operates. This is how God solidifies truth in our heart. It started with the prophets, it went all the way through the prophets. It was with Jesus himself. And I'll say, for example, the road to Emmaus. Remember the two disciples? He described to them through the scriptures and the prophets these things, and their hearts burned within them. He solidified what they knew with the, the living word of God, and that truth was solidified. He came in the upper room a little bit later, and he chided them. And he went through Moses, the Psalms, and all the prophets explaining things to himself. And when you, when you hear the word of God and you go back and you search and you see those things so God solidifies that uh, truth as solid truth. And that's how growth comes. And the writer of the Hebrews would, would say in verses 7 and 17, anybody who's not willing to come under the scrutiny of the scriptures should not be up because he will give an account to God. Every good man will say that. And every false prophet will hide from that. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the book of Hebrews. I thank you for your word. I know it's, it's been a long process of going through it. Even out the rough edges that I put there, there are many. Speak to our hearts. Give us encouragement that we can know for sure that we can defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we'd go out in the world bearing the reproach, that we'd be carrying our cross, knowing that we, this is not our home, this is not our city, this is not our joy, this is not our contentment, this is not our aim in life, this is not uh, something that is a permanent value at all of us. Our permanent value is to be with you forever in your kingdom. Be a part of your inheritance. Our reservation is not here. Our reservation is in heaven. Mike, would you pray, please? Father, what an appropriate investment of our time this morning to be studying your word. You are the great example of Father, the way that you and the your eternal son uh, fellowship together. What a great 
study for us to endeavor to emulate. Um, thank you for showing us through David this morning that if, if we repent that you restore us. You're so merciful and gracious. Please bless our time of fellowship this morning. Bless the food. Lord, let it taste good and be refreshing for our bodies. Amen. Everything in their path. So this locusts are a perfect symbolic type of the invading nations upon Israel. I remember in Nevada once once every every year, sometimes they'd skip a couple of years, they'd have what they call the Mormon crickets. They'd always go through the same place. It was a little bit north of, of Reno going to towards uh, Susanville, right, when you get the border there. And sometimes these things would be a mile wide and they were so thick that when they would come down, the highway would be absolutely red by people running over them and their blood splattering. That's nothing compared to the locusts that are, that are, are dealing with here. More than 80 types. That's kind of amazing. I got, I got a little statistic here and we'll end with this. What the chewing locust, verse 4, left the swarming locusts of Eden. So when all these different types of insects have left, there's ones that can combine and take care of what they left. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth, verse 5. For nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. That's even in the midst of acquiring judgment here, God says something amazing in verse 6. Did you notice that? Against my land. He's being violated. He's being neglected. He's being shunned. What, what the scriptures say about a fool lives his life as if there were no God. The Lord is tender, but they're strong without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion. Verse, last part of verse 6, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. I uh, found uh, statistics. It's, it's amazing how much the uh, Israelites were involved in, in, well, let's just put it bluntly, alcoholism, wine, inflamed with wine, and so forth. And I just want to kind of end tonight um, with some statistics that, that I found in Listen to this. Levy writes, alcoholism is a downfall to any nation. And this is just something for your own information, just something light to end, to end tonight. I thought it was kind of interesting. In the United States, it is the number one drug problem and the number three health problem. The statistics on alcoholism from the Narconon, Southern California, are mind-boggling. Listen to this. Alcohol abuse in the United States costs society from 40 to 60 billion dollars annually due to loss of production, health, medical care, motor vehicle accidents, violent crimes, social programs, response to alcohol problems. Listen to this. Number two, currently nearly 14 million Americans, once in one in every 13 adults, abuse alcohol 
or are alcoholics. In addition, approximately 53% of men and women in the United States report that one or more of their close relatives has a drinking problem. Half of all, number three, half, half of all traffic fatalities and a third of all traffic injuries are related to alcohol abuse. Now he's simply stating this in relation to uh, this has been going on. This is not something that, you know, is a relative. Uh, and I, I looked up the word, how many times God reversed to people's drunkards or, or chastising his people, whether in the Old and New Testament. You know, Paul admonishes us to be filled with the Spirit, not with wine. But yet the, the uh, connotations in the Old Testament are staggering. Number four, it is estimated that over three million teens between the ages of 14 and 17 in the United States today are problem drinkers. I know that from a fact. I had five teenagers, and I dealt with a lot of their, of their friends. That's true. An estimated 6.6 .6 million children under 18 live in households with at least one alcoholic parent. 62% of high school seniors report that they have been drunk. That's cause alone to keep your kids out of public school. Youths who began drinking before they turned 15 were twice as likely to develop an alcohol abuse problem and four times more likely to develop alcohol dependence compared with persons who did not begin drinking before 21. Almost done. Number five, about 43% of adults in the United States, 70, and this is 2010 by the way, 76 million people have had a parent, child, sibling, or spouse who is or was an alcoholic. Number six, alcohol contributes to 100,000 deaths annually, making it the third leading cause of preventable death in this country. And the last one, 41% of all traffic fatalities, again, are alcohol-related. He simply states in here, and I agree, sin, like alcohol, dulls the senses, blinds individuals under its control, desensitizes them to what is right and wrong, and completely dominates their life. So it's fitting in the book of Joel that God would equate that, that, that the, his people would wake up from their stupor of sin and start following him to take control. He's saying to Israel, wake up. Get out of that stupor of sin and your utter rebellion. Wow. You know, I, I can't I can't wait to, to get into these into these minor prophets. We got Amos, if you want to just thumb through these, know where these live or, or where they are. Amos, Obadiah, we got Jonah. Remember Jonah? We went through Jonah probably, what, three, two, three years ago? You know, um, Micah, who is great prophecies. Micah 5 2. Where does the Messiah come from? The Messiah comes out of Bethlehem. How do we know? That was prophesied. How did the religious leaders miss that? No prophet comes out of Galilee. Look it up yourself. You had somebody that was that was a student said, I did look it up. And Micah 5 2 said he comes out of Bethlehem. 
He's from everlasting. We also learn again at Micah, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Nam, wow. Nam. We're going to revert back when we get into Nam to Jonah. Remember, Jonah went to Nineveh. Repent, you know, preached repentance. Nineveh repented. Jonah got upset. I thought, or excuse me, 100, 150 years later, Nam prophesied that God is going to destroy Nineveh, and he did. You know what? Nineveh was so big, they say it took three days to walk from one end to the other. We could go on and on. Next is Habakkuk. He cries out in the beginning, God, I can't understand. I got so much injustice here. Don't you see the violence? Zephaniah, wow. You want to have a strong understanding of the fierceness of the day of the Lord. You read that short book of Zephaniah. It's only three chapters. You go to Haggai. What does he require? These people were paneling their own houses. Why the Lord's house was going to waste. Sometimes the, the, the New Testament uh, prognosis of us is we pat our own lives. Why the spiritual <coughs> life and the vitality of Christ in us is going to waste. I, these are just phenomenal. And then you get to Zechariah. Wow. 14 chapters of absolute prophesying of what the day of the Lord will be like. What, what is Jesus going to do in the day of the Lord? Who's going to be with him? How is he going to do it? How is it going to end up? Where is he going to come back? When we get a hint of that, remember in Acts chapter 1, and the angel said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here? Gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus, not a different one, the same Jesus is going to come back in like manner, right to that spot. Where do we see that? Zechariah and in other places. But Zechariah is very pointed. Very, very pointed. Wow. And in that day his feet will stand on the what? Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem. Wow. <laughs> That's going to be, you know, whew. Just outrageous stuff. Malachi. Malachi, the last of the writing prophets before the so-called 400 silent years between the Old and the New Testament. Malachi talks about the, the, the John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord and so on and so forth. It's going to be amazing. Kim, would you pray, please? Thank you, Father, for the privilege of looking into your word and the freedom to do that in peace and tranquility. Mm -hmm. uh, we thank you that uh, the prophets help to build a complete structure or paint a complete picture of uh, your plan for the ages. We thank you for them. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to uh, study through them now. We thank you for group here, thank you for our teachers, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen.